Anyway, I'm Richard. I'm one of the team running the course this week. Uh, we're running one of the modules on this program, which is Essential Medical Statistics. Um, about half the audience are students from that module. Whenever we run a module, we try to have a seminar speaker who is relevant but diverting um, and off-syllabus, something that's fun rather than examinable. Um, and to be honest, when you want a fun talk about statistics, um, you have to try really hard not to invite Martin Bland at any time. Um, last time he spoke, it was about the life expectancy of left-handed cricketers. <laughs> and we're pleased to have Martin back. Um, just this morning, our students were studying Bland-Altman plots, or Altman-Bland plots, depending where your loyalties lie. But either way, it's um, one of the most highly cited papers it's the most highly cited paper in the Lancet ever. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably sick of hearing people mention that. It's one of the 30 most highly cited papers ever of any kind on anything anywhere in the universe. There well, you I'm go. I'm proud that it's a stats <laughs> paper that makes that lead. Right. <laughs> not, not as highly cited as David Cox. No. Okay, well, thank you for coming, Martin. Okay, thank you very much. Right, well, I'm going to talk today about diabetes, blood sugar, and red wine. As it says, this is a personal study, and you'll see why it's a personal study. All the data were not only collected by me, but provided by me as well. And it was published in Significance, the, uh, uh, the magazine of the Royal Statistical Society, which I recommend uh, highly. It's a very interesting and varied publication and I found it to be the, a place where I can publish things that no respectable journal is going to take but are often, you know, much more illuminating than what I get into the Lancet. So, uh, I'm an emeritus professor, that means they don't pay me anymore. I just do it for fun, so we'll see if we can have some. Uh, okay, now this is all about me. Uh, I have diabetes. I have type 2 diabetes and I was diagnosed around the beginning of 2001. It was a shock because I expect to be told that that was what it was, uh, but not a great surprise because I am the descendant of many type 2 diabetics. Both my mother and father had type 2 diabetes. Both my grandmothers had type 2 diabetes. My grandfathers, we don't know. One died as a young man in an accident and the other died in the trenches in the First World War. So we don't know about them. Uh, several other members of my family have had type 2 diabetes or currently have it. Of my two sisters, one has type 2 diabetes, the other doesn't. She has hypothyroidism, which an endocrinologist assured me is just a different expression of the same genes. So, you know, we're full of it. And uh, one of the things I, had to, I was asked to do, uh, because of my new status as a diabetic, was to make my was to measure my blood glucose every morning, uh, fasting blood glucose, that is before I've had breakfast. And uh, you do this with a little finger prick to raise a drop of blood, and there's a picture. I do all my own stunts, that's my blood, <laughs> and uh, that's my meter, and that was my glucose, but not fasting, of course, you know, I, I did that this specially for the uh, presentation. Uh, and. Uh, uh, and so a number appears there, and it's supposed to be uh, below 
well, currently, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll come to it. Now, I love data. So I began to, I began to enter this into a computer and uh, I began to analyze them and watch uh, the graph falling as the blood glucose fell because I was taking the medication and I was watching my diet and not taking things which I was told would deadly, which really surprised me. The most deadly thing I had in my diet was orange juice. Uh, I thought it was supposed to be good for me, but apparently it's terrible because uh, it's full of sugar. Uh, and uh, my blood glucose came under control. The initial measurement by my GP was 24 millimoles per litre. And my first fasting blood glucose that I made, measured before breakfast, was 19 millimoles per litre. And the target was less than 7 millimoles per litre. So it was quite a long way to go. But I made it. Uh, I eventually reached that magic 7. And then for several years, my fasting blood glucose remained comfortably below this limit and I stopped worrying about it. I was so used by then to this diet without sugar and so on uh, and uh, you know everything was going very smoothly, nothing interesting was happening and I stopped recording it. Oh, what did I do then? Hit the wrong key. Right, uh, there's a second measurement used to monitor diabetes, HbA1c or glycosylated haemoglobin. And uh, this requires a much larger sample of blood. They stick a needle in your vein and suck it out uh, and uh, send it to a lab and you get the result a few days later. And so that's always done as a clinic. You can't do it at home. And it measures the glucose exposure over the past few weeks. Uh, rather than over the past few hours, which is what the uh, gluc blood glucose measurement does. And it's the measurement that doctors prefer uh, to use to monitor diabetes. Now, the method of measuring blood glucose changed. It changed from the concentration of glucose in the blood to the concentration in serum, that is in the liquid component of the blood. And glucose is highly soluble, as I'm sure you all know, uh, and uh, it is nearly all in the liquid. So when they changed this, uh, it went up. Now, I didn't notice that it had been changed. I noticed that the colour of the plastic strips I put into my little meter had changed, but my glucose went up and I thought that's funny I haven't changed my diet or anything I'm still taking all the drugs you know why has it gone up and then my wife said you haven't looked at the leaflet in your uh, in this little box because if you do you'll see that it's changed and so I realized yes of course it's gone up because the way of measuring it has gone up not because the actual thing has gone up uh, and uh, uh, the, the upper limit was now around 8 months. Uh, sorry, yeah, sorry, 8 millimoles per litre. And the unit of measurement of HbA1c also changed uh, from a percentage to millimoles per litre. And I went to see my GP and she said to me, your HbA1c is 75. And I said, seven, seven, I guess 75? She said, what did you think it was going to be? I said, 6.5%. Uh, she said, ah, yes, we've changed it to millimoles per litre. So millimoles per litre it became. And uh, 
So that was, that was all right, but there was still a shock because 75 millimoles per litre was a very high value. Uh, she said it should be 59 or less. So I was out of control again. Now I knew it had gone higher, but you know, what with the change of units and so on, I hadn't really appreciated it very much. And uh, so I thought, right, you've got to do something about this. Uh, if you don't, they'll put you on insulin, you'll have to inject yourself. And I didn't fancy that. I thought, I'll leave that till I'm older. Uh, so I decided to go for a more rigorous diet instead. Not only would I avoid all sugar, I would cut out most of the carbohydrates. So usually now one piece of bread in the morning is okay. That's it. That's all I have. Just to show you what a health freak I am, I bake my own bread without any salt because I also have very high blood pressure. Although the drugs keep that down to something really good. Uh, so I thought, I'll also, yeah, no more potatoes. I'll try harder to avoid beer and wine. Uh, I won't cut them out altogether. That is asking too much. Uh, but they are vehicles for carbohydrate and sugar. And so when I drink alcohol, I'll drink red wine. And I also resume recording of the daily fasting glucose to monitor the effects. Oh, I've done it again. There. And... This is what it looks like over several years, days since the 1st of January 2012. And you can see that at first it goes down in a very good and encouraging way. And you can see that's going down over that first year, uh, down below that new limit of eight. And then the next year it went up again, it was hovering around it and then below and it chops and changes, it goes up and down. And occasionally uh, that shoots, the daily glucose shoots up like there. I know what that was. That was at the International Biometrics Conference in Florence, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> we went to a... Uh, uh, to, to one of these restaurants, that, a tasting restaurant, and it was tasting enormous amounts of pasta. It was a nightmare. Uh, okay, so it arises and falls, occasional spikes. Uh, the medication was increased, was still changed at several points, and uh, as you can see, the HbA1c rises and falls with the fasting glucose, as you might expect. You know? So I thought, ah, it might be interesting to see whether I can predict the HbA1c from the fasting glucose. Uh, you know, I don't know what my HbA1c is, but maybe I can predict it. I am a statistician after all. So I thought, well, the pre, you know, they say the preceding few weeks. How about six weeks? So I said, right, 42 days. Uh, and it, it worked. Then I tried a, a longer period. I tried 60 days and it worked better. So that's what I use now. And there is a prediction of my blood glucose uh, to predict my HbA1c and you can see there's quite a lot of measurements in there and there's the regression line and the confidence interval for the prediction and the one in red, the 59, that is the value of HbA1c predicted for the 16th of August 2017 when I had blood taken and I'd had to arrange it because I was going off on some conference visit and I thought it was going to go up. So I'll get it measured before that happens. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, and uh, the measured value was 59. So I thought that was fantastic, you know. Prediction and measurement coinciding exactly. 
My wife, who features again in this story, uh, she remarked one day that she noticed that my blood glucose seemed to be a bit lower on days after I'd been drinking. Uh, and uh, so I thought, yes, I think you might be right there. And so I thought, well, I will add a record of my wine drinking to my daily glucose record. And a prospective data collection to test the hypothesis that red wine was associated with the reduced blood glucose. And I thought, if this works out, won't that be fantastic, you know? I can have a drink and think I'm doing myself good. Uh, I also recorded an other alcohol variable, which might be white wine, beer, whiskey, uh, whatever, uh, because I thought that these might increase blood glucose. Uh, yeah, uh, sherry gets counted as other alcohol because it's white wine, pork gets counted as red wine uh, because that's what it is. Uh, and so uh, I thought other alcohol might increase blood glucose because white wine and beer are vehicles for sugar and carbohydrate. So, so my planned statistical analysis was I would do a two-sample t-method for red wine days versus no red wine days and a multiple regression of glucose on red wine and other alcohol jointly. And uh, the hypotheses for that were that the effect of red wine and other alcohol would be opposite and also other alcohol consumption would not be independent of red wine because on social occasions I might well drink both. So. I decided to write an article about this in 2017, March the 27th it was. I know this because it was at uh, the meeting to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Centre for Statistics in Medicine. And uh, at the dinner I was sitting next to the editor of the BMJ. And uh, we were chatting, I, I told her about this and we agreed that it might make an interesting article for the Christmas BMJ. Uh, and uh, uh, I was very happy about that. Uh, and uh, on the morning after this dinner, I had a very high fasting blood glucose of, uh, of 9.0 millimoles per litre. And that was because I'd been drinking red wine and sparkling white wine and lots of food. Uh, and uh, now I've been monitoring the comparison between red wine days and other days, uh, you know, just doing the occasional t-test and this day increased the running value for my significance test and I thought right well we know that repeated significance testing is wrong but I'd only been doing it for my own interest so that didn't matter. But if I was going to publish this, I would need to set a date for a formal closing of the data set and not look at them again. So that's what I did. And uh, I didn't want to invalidate the whole thing by choosing the final date just because the results fit the theory. I know that there are people who do this, but I hope none of them are statisticians. Uh, so I chose June the 30th because that would allow time to prepare an article for the September deadline for the Christmas BMJ. This is how real science works. <laughs> and uh, so that, there you go, that's June the 30th, 2017, going from the 12th of December when I first started doing this. So 
you know, it's nearly 200 days and uh, as you can see, the difference is small but apparent. Uh, it is statistically significant. The confidence interval is minus five, uh, 0 0.51 to 0 0.06 millimoles per litre. And uh, I thought that that was good evidence for a relationship between red wine and glucose. Normal distribution with uniform variance followed quite closely, apart from a couple of outliers, and one rather dramatic outlier. That was the, uh, uh, obviously, another wild night. It wasn't the one in Florence, but a different one. Um, and, uh, uh, and curiously, on a day when there was no wine, I don't know how that came about, uh, and uh, the sample is quite large, you know, nearly 200 people, roughly equal size groups. Uh, I know you want to know. Uh, I drank red wine on slightly more than 50% of the days. Um, and uh, so that seemed perfectly valid, uh, except that the assumption of independence, they're not, of course. Uh, the analysis ignores the fact that the glucose measurements from day to day are related. A high glucose day tends to be followed by another high glucose day. You saw the way that thing goes up and down. It's not... but... So, the analysis is only approximate. It ignores the autocorrelation. Uh, and uh, there are the uh, sequential p-values. I thought that would be interesting. As you can see, when I started to do it, uh, the p-value was not significant because there were only a few observations and it fell and fell very satisfactorily. That's when I decided to write the article and then it went up again. Uh, and uh, for a few days it was above the red line and then it went down again. Uh, and uh, if there were a genuine difference, we would expect the p-value to tend to get progressively smaller as data were added, which it does. So I think that that's fine. Uh, if there were no true difference, we might expect the p-value to go up and down uh, in a random way, except bearing in mind that each p-value is linked to the one before. So they would sort of zigzag rather than be just scattered. The test was statistically significant when I decided to write the article on day 87, but around day 140 it ceased to be so. But it became significant again before my predetermined analysis point. That's very important, my predetermined analysis point. And the trend was downwards. And I think this illustrates quite well how dangerous repeated significance testing is. Don't do it. Uh, a thing, you know. If you keep doing it and then pick one of them out, it can be highly misleading. We should decide what we're going to do and when before we start. Now, I didn't in this case, but I decided well before I decided when I was going to write the paper. Uh, we must not keep adding data and testing it until we get the results we want. But the overall evidence does support the red wine hypothesis. The other alcohol uh, that was associated with red wine, as I thought it would be, uh, being consumed on 14.1% of red wine days and 5.4% of days without red wine. And the multiple regression estimates are there. The estimate for red wine is minus 0.31 millimoles per litre uh, on days following wine. 
and uh, that was highly significant. P is 0.009, very close to the 0.01 that I had for the t-test, and uh, the confidence interval is also very similar. So you get very similar results. The just slightly more significant, slightly narrower interval. And the estimate for the other alcohol was plus 0.26, so it went up, but it wasn't significant. The confidence interval goes from minus 0.12 to plus 0.64. Hence, other alcohol was associated with an increase in blood glucose, though not significant. And there are the serial P's for that, and as you can see, it's quite weird. For the red wine, it goes... It, bubbles about, falls and stays down and below the limit all the time. Uh, for the other alcohol, it goes down, it's much more dramatic, but then it goes up again. So why that should be, I have absolutely no idea. Um, it had an effect very early on, but it, that significance disappears towards the end of the period, saying it may be spurious. However, again, it illustrates how misleading these significance tests are, repeated significance tests are, but it's supporting my theory that other uh, alcohol would increase blood glucose, but it just didn't prove it. The evidence crumbled as I continued, and it's not refuted by the non-significant effect. Uh, the data are consistent with an increase of up to 0.64 millimoles per litre, with no difference, and consistent with a decrease of 0.12 millimoles per litre. More data in the future may cast further light on this. Now, there are a few caveats here. This is an observational study, not an experiment. We must be very cautious uh, about inferring cause and effect. Drinking red wine is not random. Okay, it tends to happen at weekends. It tends to happen when eating out, for example. So my wife and I had a night out on Tuesday and we shared a bottle of red wine and... How can I put this? We didn't waste any of it. Uh, I'd have guessed that eating out would, if anything, increase glucose, but this is pure, pure speculation. It did that particular one, certainly did. Uh, we've also noticed that my glucose appears to be higher after I've eaten curry. Why that should be, I have no idea. Uh, even though I usually do this without rice or other carbohydrates, but of course curry contains a number of pharmacologically active substances such as turmeric and who knows what they do. Uh, well, I'm sure many people do know what they do. I don't know what they do. Uh, and curry implies no alcohol consumption if I'm at home, often a beer if I'm out. Now, the details of food are not recorded. All that can be said is there's rather weak evidence of an association between blood glucose and red wine consumption on the previous day in one person with diabetes. So I thought, I'll have a look at the literature. If you're going to send this paper off, you know, having done all this, you better say, you know, find out, has anybody else done it? Uh, so I did a search and... Uh, I looked at red wine and fasting blood glucose, and uh, here is a systematic review by the Oxford team. Uh, I should say Jeff Aronson commented on this article for me very kindly, uh, and uh, uh, they 
reported a systematic review of randomized trials of the effect of alcohol intake upon glucose. They reported no overall evidence of an effect of alcohol on blood glucose, but did not distinguish between red wine and other sources of alcohol. Gepner et al. managed to randomize 224 people with diabetes who usually abstained from alcohol to a daily drinker of red wine, white wine, or mineral water. You know, I mean, how do you get people to agree to this? I, uh, it's amazing. And managed to retain 87% of them for two years. Whether they stuck to this for two years, I don't know. Uh, but they allowed their measurements to be used, they reported significantly lower fasting plasma glucose with white wine compared with water and a smaller non-significant reduction with red wine. But there do appear to be problems with the design of this study, as Doug pointed out to me. Uh, he published on this, why don't I read all his articles, he was implying, well it was a letter, and he said the actual allocation was pretty ropey and when I looked at it in detail I agreed with him. So that's a dodgy study. Shayatal randomised 109 people with type 2 diabetes to red wine or alcohol-free diet beer for three months. Why? I don't know. But they got a significant reduction in fasting blood glucose for the red wine group compared to the beer group. Cordain et al. did a crossover trial and they randomised 20 women to drink 190 mils of red wine, that's a large glass, uh, on five days per week for 10 weeks and abstain from alcohol for 10 weeks. Uh, you know, <laughs> oh, I just give people drugs. Uh, they reported that mean S, uh, an SD fasting glucose was 91.1 uh, and 9.2 milligrams per deciliter at baseline, 91.6 following red wine and 88.5 following abstention with no significant differences. So they certainly didn't agree with me but they didn't disagree. Uh, in an uncontrolled study of 42 subjects, Cessna et al, this is the hardest paper to get hold of, uh, reported that after daily consumption of 25 mils of red wine for two weeks, blood glucose increased slightly. And this one I like, Gin et al. <laughs> Nominative determinism in action, eh? Uh, Gin et al. reported the amount which glucose rose after a meal taken with red wine was less than when compared to water. A similar result was found for tannin taken after the meal, but no difference for alcohol, which I was very interesting because it suggests that it might be the tannin rather than the alcohol in the red wine, uh, which may have an effect. So it's not the wineness, but the redness. So that's an interesting idea, but they didn't report fasting blood glucose, so we don't know about that. Uh, I could find no report of the effect of a single dose of red wine on fasting glucose. I came across this paper by Holst et al. reporting that regular alcohol consumption decreased the risk of developing type 2 diabetes and the lowest risk was estimated to occur at 14 drinks per week for men and 9 drinks per week for women. They didn't distinguish red wine consumption, but it's very nice that their optimum figures coincide so well with the Department for Health recommendations for what you should be drinking. So there you are. So when people tell you one drink is enough to kill you, say yes, it might stop me dying of diabetes, so that would be a good thing, you know? <laughs> Every, I know that we w I will die.
you know, that will happen. <laughs> so what next, I thought, would it be feasible to do a tr oh yeah, but before I thought about what next, I thought, right, okay, so you've reviewed the literature, you've done the analysis, you've collected the data, it's September, send it to the BMJ. So I sent it to the BMJ, and they turned it down. It's not scientific enough, they said. I thought, what's not scientific about it? Uh, but uh, they didn't tell me that, they just said it wasn't scientific enough. So uh, I, uh, I thought, well, I'm not going to worry. Uh, I met the uh, editor of the BMJ later, at a very sad occasion, and uh, she, uh, uh, she said, what happened about that red wine paper? I said, oh, I sent it to Significance and they published it. She said, oh yeah, I thought you'd have something like that up your sleeve. So it's all right. So everybody's happy, we're all friends. Uh, so what could we do? How could we do a study? Could we do a trial? I thought, well, in principle, I could randomise myself to drink on some days, but not others. But I think this would be unlikely to work. I don't think my wife would like it, for example. Uh, I have a social life, and I'm honestly not that dedicated to this particular search for knowledge. And if we said, oh yeah, we're going out to dinner, but uh, this is one of the days I'm randomised not to drink, you know, no, it's not going to work. Uh, and I thought it'd be even less likely to be able to randomise others to drink or not drink on given days. Uh, probably much easier to randomise them to drink every day for a given month, as these various researchers have done. Perhaps there's an animal model, I don't know. But like most nutritional risk factors, red wine and glucose is very hard to study. It's really difficult to study nutritional risk factors. Apart from anything else, if you drink red wine, you're not drinking something else. And so this is always the problem. It's like saying nuts are good for you. Yeah, if you eat lots of nuts, you're not eating that much rump steak. So, you know, it's, it's very difficult to pin down one factor. Oh, I've done it again. Uh, now, the study was prospective. It appears to demonstrate an association, but the sample is rather small, just one person. Uh, it can't really get smaller. And uh, even if this relationship were causal, uh, and not associated with other dietary things, you know. It might be just an idiosyncratic reaction, it might be just me, or the particular type of type 2 diabetes I have, because type 2 diabetes is a very variable condition, and there is some evidence that it's in fact several different diseases. Perhaps the next step, I thought, would be to get other statistically minded people with type 2 diabetes, so get the diabetic statisticians of the world to unite, but only the ones who like red wine, and to replicate the study. Yeah, I thought it might be nice to explore this within my own family, uh, but that can't be done because it's a condition of later life. Uh, most of the people I know, I knew with type 2 diabetes in my family have died, uh, and uh, uh, there's only my sister left that I know of, and she, she prefers white. Uh, Perhaps a few statisticians with diabetes might be moved to add to knowledge. However, the response since my significance article has been none. Uh, it would be interesting to see how this works in type 1 diabetes too, which is a completely different disease. As for myself, I continue to record my blood glucose. I did it this morning. It was 10.7, quite high. Uh, I've added other data, the type of other alcohol, beer, whiskey, white wine, uh, the number of drinks, 
and some information about food consumption, how much carbohydrate, not measured in a scientific way, but equivalence of a slice of bread, uh, and uh, approximately, and whether I exercised uh, on the day before as well, because I have an exercise bike and I try to go on it most days. And of course I'll drink red wine as usual. It seems to be rather good for me. Okay, thank you very much. I have to thank Doug Altman and Jeff Aronson and the Significance Editorial Board for their helpful comments on earlier drafts. Has anybody ever thanked anybody for their extremely annoying comments on an earlier draft? They were extremely helpful, all of them. And I also have to thank my two GPs, Sam Patel, who diagnosed me, and Alison Hunter, who now looks after me, for their excellent care, stuffing me full of drugs and keeping it within the bounds of reason. Thanks. <laughs>